Veterans Path, helping veterans find peace, acceptance, transformation, and honor through practical tools like meditation and mindfulness, physical and outdoor experiences, and a community of camaraderie. I'm John McCaskill, a Navy SEAL commander turned mindfulness teacher. Here on the Veterans Path podcast, I interview veterans, athletes, corporate leaders, and many others who found peace through the practices of meditation and mindfulness, breaking down the stigma of pursuing mental health and making it a priority, improving and saving lives. All right. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening. Good day. I'm John McCaskill, your host, and thanks for tuning in to the Veterans Path Podcast. This podcast is just a piece of what we do. Veterans Path is actually a nonprofit working to introduce veterans and active service members to meditation and mindfulness, typically in outdoor settings, so they can rediscover a sense of peace, acceptance, transformation, and honor. And that's where the word path in our name comes from. And the point of this podcast is to make people more aware of what we do to increase support of Veterans Path, increase attendance at our retreats so we're able to help more veterans, and finally, to reduce the stigma around mindfulness and meditation and seeking mental health support. Listeners and viewers, if you're enjoying the show, please give us a review or a like and share the show with anyone and everyone you think could benefit from our message. Also, you can directly support Veterans Path by clicking on the support button on the podcast or by visiting veteranspath.org forward slash donate. All right. Today, I'm so very honored to have as my guest, Linda Graham. Linda Graham is a licensed marriage and family therapist in private practice in, San in the San Francisco Bay Area. She integrates modern neuroscience, mindfulness practices, and relationship psychology in her nationwide trainings. She's the author of Resilience, Powerful Practices for Bouncing Back from Disappointment, Difficulty, and Even Disaster, and Bouncing Back, Rewiring Your Brain for Maximum Resilience and Well-Being, both of which are topics of critical importance and very relevant to the times in which we find ourselves. Stay tuned as we're going to learn a lot more about Linda here on today's episode of the Veterans Path Podcast. All right, welcome back. As mentioned in the intro, my guest today is psychotherapist, author, meditation teacher, and mindfulness expert, Linda Graham. Linda, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, John. It's really a privilege to be talking with you today. How are you? You know, personally, I'm healthy, I'm sheltering at home, I have a garden I can look at even as we're talking, I walk my Ridge Trail every day. So at a personal level, blessed and grateful for that. At a more engaged level, dealing with clients and dealing with the posts that I write and the workshops that I do now all online and aware of the dangers, the anxiety, the sort of collective trauma that we're going through, um, my heart can be very heavy. And I work hard. I work hard to find the resources of resilience within me, to offer those to people where I think I can be of some help, because it's almost moment by moment, how am I doing? Moment by moment. Am I grateful for, as my teacher James Barris says, everything that is going more than all right. So being grateful for the things that are going all right and keeping my heart open to where they're not 
and that's a, a that's a dance moment by moment by moment these days certainly yeah i actually interviewed james uh last week as well uh we were talking just before i hit record that i interviewed rick hansen earlier this week interviewed richard miller two weeks ago uh lee has interviewed uh rather introduced me to all the powerhouses out there that she's friends with. And again, I'm just in awe of, of having you guys on the show and uh, very excited to share the messages that you have. And for our so listeners, if, uh, sorry, go ahead. If I could say, Lee is such a wonderful human being and teacher and Indeed. leader in her own right. She truly is. And we're all part of a group that Rick Hansen started 10 years ago called NeuroDharma for people who are interested in neuroscience, people who are interested in contemplative practice, and it happens that most of us are psychologists as well. And Lee happened to lead our group um, a month ago in an exercise about grief and originally intended for just personal grief, climate change grief, inequities in society in general, and then the pandemic hit. So she led us through a grieving process for what's being lost, um, including hope, <laughs> in, including a sense of clarity. Things are so uncertain and unpredictable. So um, I, I just wanna say it's so important when people can come together, even by Zoom, to share their concerns, share their heartaches, share their vulnerabilities, share their strengths. This is what I'm doing that's resourcing me and helping me cope. And so to be with other people facing all of this together is a huge boost. It boosts our resilience in our nervous system. So it's a huge boost for us as people. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, uh, we were talking just before, uh, again, right before I hit record, about last week when we were supposed to originally record this. And I, I'm, I was working from home with my three-year-old little girl and my one-year-old little boy downstairs. And, uh, and we reached almost time we were supposed to record this. And my little girl had had enough of daddy working upstairs and, and wanted to spend some time with me. Uh, so I reached out to you and I'm very thankful for your flexibility because uh, it helped me deal with some personal anxiety and that I was working there with my daughter downstairs. And I knew that if I didn't cancel that, I would not have been in the right mindset to have done the show with you. Uh, so thank you for that. So you're really opening up this whole arena of how people regulate their nervous system through other people, children through their parents all the time parents through their partners all the time, if that's available, if that's working. But all of us, I mean, you're offering these podcasts on the veteran's path. People get reassured, strengthened, kind of put back in the boat by connecting with other people who can feel safe or safer um, and resourced. So it's so important that, I mean, we're hardwired to regulate our survival responses, to regulate our fight, flight, freeze, and our shutdown collapse by reaching out to other people that we believe are safe and can provide that kind of comfort and support and soothing. Then we can come back into our range of resilience. Then we're able to hold whatever we're feeling, but be able to be in our higher brain, our right mind, and think clearly, figure out what we need to do. So this reaching out for comfort and presence and regulation is essential. And that's why people are 
doing that by Zoom, people are having their wedding receptions over Zoom or a memorial service over Zoom right. or a birthday party or a graduation party or a card party, a board game party, <laughs> because we, we need that connection more than ever, really. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I know I've had Zoom calls with my family, um, not, not with my three-year-old and my one-year-old, uh, but my, my parents, and then I've got three older sisters and a younger brother, and they're complete chaos, uh, the, the Zoom calls, because nobody's muted and <laughs> everybody's talking at once, but they're a lot of fun too. And, and it is, it's funny how we've actually <clears throat> spent more time video chatting as a family since this pandemic and mm -hmm. uh, you know, shelter in place has been uh, a thing um, right. than, than we ever have before. I mean, we would chat on text and Facebook uh, every once in a while, but this is really the only time that we've ever done the, the whole family on a video call at the same time. So it's, there are definitely good things coming from, from where we are. So if I can pass on to you something that I learned from James Barras at that NeuroDharma meeting recently, where when people are on Zoom and they're on a speaker view so that you can see all the little images of everybody. Right. And if each person puts their hands toward the edge of their screen and everybody puts their hands toward the edge of the screen, you can kind of reach out and touch hands. <laughs> and it is so sweet to be I able because we're we, besides connection and eye contact and voice and all of that, we need touch. We need touch to also feel safe and connected and belonging. And, and as we're sheltering in place, that's really restricted or dampened down for a lot oh, of people. So to even have that sense of touch or willingness to touch, taking in the comfort of touch, even by Zoom, is a resource. It's a way we can become more resilient. Yeah. James had, uh, he actually led me through uh, a short practice where he had me put my hand on my heart. And, and even that, where you're, you're gently touching your own heart or putting your hand above your own heart, that can, uh, that can be helpful. Uh, even though it is yourself, uh, how, it, how it can really help to release the dopamine and, uh, and the, uh, if I can share with you, because I have the hand on the heart exercise in my book, Bouncing Back, and in my book, Resilience, and in all the workshops I teach, and you can extend what James was suggesting of putting your hand on your heart, and people watching or listening to this can do this. You place your hand on your heart, so you feel the warm touch of your hand on your heart. And then you begin to breathe more deeply and slowly and gently into the heart center because that activates the calming branch of the parasympathetic. And then you, you um, breathe in a sense of ease and safety and goodness, which actually restores your heart rate coherent, your coherent heart rate variability. Right. So you're able to respond to stress better. And then you remember a moment, just one moment, when you felt safe and loved and cherished with another human being, not the whole relationship, just one moment when you felt safe and loved and cherished. And it could be with a partner or a child. It could be with a, a parent or a teacher or a friend. It could be with a therapist. It could be with a spiritual figure. It could be with a pet. 
So you're simply remembering this moment and you let the feelings be very real and let them wash through your body and let it linger for about 10 or 20 or 30 seconds. Very often you can feel a shift of relaxation and a calming in your nervous system. What we're doing is by connecting with people that we feel safe with and loved and cherished by, even in our imagination, because that's real to the brain. We're activating the release of oxytocin, which is the hormone in men and women. It is the hormone of calm and connect, of bonding and belonging, of tend and befriend, and so of safety and trust. So we, when, when we can evoke the oxytocin flowing through, we will feel calmer, engaged with other people, and then more able to recover our resilience. So that is the first tool that I teach my clients and in workshops because it works so reliably and it's so portable. We come back into our natural baseline equilibrium. I love that. And hopefully our, our listeners will actually put that into practice as you're speaking, because you've got a very calming voice. And I, I, I just like, I like listening to you. If you could just talk to the rest of the show and I'll just sit over here and shut up. <laughs> so actually when I do teach it, I suggest people practice it five times a day for a week. And by practicing over and over and over again, you create the neural circuitry in your brain that remembers how to do that. And the next time there's a startle or an upset, your hand will go automatically to your heart and you will automatically think of the resources of people you have in your life that love and cherish you. So you're creating a new habit in your brain and in your being that you can count on to help you be more resilient. Nice. So I I kind of want to go back in time uh, for you. How did you get onto the path that you are on with psychotherapy and family therapy and being a family therapist? Uh, How did you get into this field? Well, both with psychotherapy and with mindfulness meditation, both. And they were sort of separate paths. But both times I saw people around me who seemed to be happy or content or certainly more resilient, more capable of dealing with life's challenges than I was. And I would ask them, okay, what's the secret? And for some, it was psychotherapy, and for some, it was mindfulness meditation. So at about the same time, I began doing both. And of course, I think it's the integration of being aware and being aware of what's going on inside that helps us be resilient. But it was my own experience of this works. (laughs) And then I became a psychotherapist because I saw the power of helping people transform their lives. So much of what psychotherapy is, is helping people become more resilient, just coping with the challenges and crises and struggles and stressors of their lives. That's a lot of what therapy is and recovering their capacity to do that. So as a therapist, I began to see what works to help people come into a sense of presence and awareness, come into a sense of allowing and accepting what was happening, who they are, accepting themselves for this is happening, and then being able to be with that long enough to have some compassion, some uh, acceptance of it, but also to have some curiosity about it. What can I learn? What could I do differently? So this whole 
path, I mean, I teach about resilience through experiential exercises like we just did the hand on the heart because it is experience that changes the brain. It is experience that changes our habits and our behaviors. So, and learning from our experience is how we build our resilience. So I tend to teach people to become more resilient through practices, through tools, through strategies that they can use every day, every moment, and learn that they can, to learn that they can become more resilient. So example, if someone does hand on the heart, and I hope they do, and they find that, oh, that really does help, I can keep doing that. They're not only learning a tool that helps them be more resilient, they're learning that they can learn. And that's the most important step. They're learning that they can learn how to become more resilient. And that develops a resilience mindset, which is not just recovering from bad things when they happen, but more preparing ourselves to know that we can cope with something when it happens. And so we're already preparing ourselves for, you know, as Louisa May Alcott says, I'm no longer afraid of storms for I'm learning how to sail my ship. So we're learning how to sail the ship before the storm comes and we are not in so much danger of sinking. Right, and that, that leads me to a, a question that I actually was gonna ask later down the, uh, in the interview, but uh, I think it ties into what you were just discussing. In, in your book, uh, you have a section entitled, uh, When Shit Happens, Developing Response Flexibility. <laughs> Is that the response flexibility that you're discussing there is, is preparing for a, a time when you're going to need to be resilient by preparing what's on the outside? Uh, I think that's what, if I remember the context correctly, yeah. Yeah. is that what that means? So um, I do sometimes teach shit happens, shift happens too. <laughs> So that when something bad happens, it is the response flexibility. <clears throat> it's seeing what's happening, but being able to shift gears or shift perspectives or shift our behaviors. And that capacity of response flexibility is part of the functioning of our higher brain, the prefrontal cortex, which is called the CEO of resilience by me and by many other clinicians. And so that prefrontal cortex does all the things that we've been talking about so far. It regulates the body and the nervous system. It regulates all of our emotions. It quells the fear response. It allows us to know what's going on inside ourselves and what's going on inside of somebody else and to empathize with that, to make sense of that. It's what allows us to be aware of our self continuing through space and time. So it's part of our insight awareness to ourselves. It is the structure we use for response flexibility. And so it's what allows us to shift gears. And when we can use the functioning of the higher brain to do all the things I just mentioned, coming back into our range of resilience so we can think clearly, then the higher brain can do what we know it for, what we know the prefrontal cortex for, executive functioning, analysis, planning, judgment, decision-making, logical thinking. That's what we know that structure of the brain for, but it does all of these other strategies as well to prepare us for that. So then, yes, that's how we can choose to know bad things happen to good people. That is part of life. We can't, we can't be wise enough or adept enough to protect ourselves from the human condition 
we're all vulnerable to, you know, whether we lose our car keys in our wallet or we get mold in the bathroom or our best friend moves across country or our best friend gets a diagnosis of lung cancer or COVID-19. Bad things happen in the human condition. So knowing that, having the wisdom to know that and to begin to prepare ourselves, I mean, not just stockpiling toilet paper as many of us have done in this <laughs> crisis, but preparing our own mind and heart to be able to um, know that bad things happen, know that we can cope with them, know that we can learn the skills and the tools to cope with them. So that's part of the resilience mindset, the growth mindset, which is mm, besides learning to prepare and you know, Theodore Rubin, who's an American psychiatrist, says um, the problem is not that there are problems. The problem is expecting otherwise and thinking that having a problem is a problem. You know, we learn to know that we have to be prepared. But the resilience mindset then goes even a step further, which we call transforming any adversity into learning and growth. Bad things happen, you cope, you get back to baseline, but then what do you learn? from what are the lessons from that particular event about how you could cope differently, how other people could cope differently, how you could be better resourced so that you are better resourced the next time something happens. So the, the learning, the resilience mindset is part of resilience also. And you're a Navy SEAL, so you must have so much training, preparing for disasters and catastrophes. Right. That's important that you can do that but really what's important is that you trust yourself and you trust your buddies to be able to do that. That's a key to resilience. No, absolutely. Uh, it, it's knowing that we can lean on one another. That's, that's a, that's a huge piece. And I think that's a huge piece that we were just referencing earlier is even though we may be um, isolated, reaching out, via zoom to lean on one another that's uh, that's a huge piece of that as well and that's it, why many people now are reframing social distancing as physical, physical. distancing but go yeah. ahead and connect socially absolutely yeah I, I never really understood why it was called social distancing it's definitely physical distancing seems uh to be more uh appropriate and less uh i don't know less demoralizing in, in a way um be because many people Many people would already feel isolated or lonely even before all of this started. Right. And so to get a message to continue doing that is the wrong message, really. Right. It's not so helpful. It is about reaching out and connecting and receiving that connection. You know, when someone offers to go to the store for you or, you know, to receive the connection. Mm -hmm. In fact, there was a wonderful poem sent, we believe, by a, a group that called themselves the Belfast Ireland COVID-19 team. And the poem was about when you see the empty streets and the empty restaurants, take that as a sign of love in action. Mm. People are staying home to protect each other. So even receiving that as a form of support and a form of connection helps support our resilience. Yeah. That's a great way of looking at that and not one that I had really thought about before. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to steal that and use it. <laughs> <laughs> of course. I think that's important. That's a great way of looking at things. Uh, and I, 
I always think that reframing is a, is a huge piece of, of resilience. Um, so and, if I, if I could say something about please. that, I'm sorry, interrupting. Um, so our perception filters how we're going to respond to something. And when we can catch and notice our perceptions and then choose to shift them, we can be more resilient. And one of the quotes I love to use from James Russell Lowell is mishaps are like knives that either cut us or serve us as we grasp them by the blade or by the handle. So our reframing what's happening is a huge part of being able to cope with it, huge. Another one I'm going to steal. <laughs> I, I just need to start writing these down and put them all over the wall here. <laughs> these are great. Then you can steal this one too that a friend sent me. Um, we're not stuck at home. We're blessed to have a home. That's true. Just having these perspectives. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like the old, uh, is the glass half full or is it ha half empty? Oh, well, I'm just happy to have a glass of water. Exactly. Uh, you know, so exactly. Uh, and then I just was reminded of this one by some other conversation I was having earlier this morning. So there's, there's a teaching story in the Buddhist tradition about if you have a glass of water and you put a lot of salt in it and you stir it around, you can't drink the water, it's too salty. Mm -hmm. If you take salt and put it in a large freshwater pond or lake and then take a glass of water from the lake, that you can drink because the salt has been diluted in the lake. And the teaching was live your life like a lake. That we have enough capacity to hold the salt and even the salt in the wounds, to hold the difficult things. And yet there's still so much more that we can draw on of connections with people and our own resources, that we can hold what's happening in a larger frame, in a larger perspective, in a larger awareness. Yep. Yeah. Add that to the add that to the list over here. <laughs> <laughs> right. So in in your uh, in your book resilience, you mentioned five different types of intelligence that are foundational to resilience. Mm -hmm. Can you briefly run through those and then what each means with us? Yeah. So there's somatic body-based intelligence, emotional intelligence relational intelligence within ourselves, relational intelligence with other people, and then reflective intelligence. So we begin with somatic experience because all of our responses to anything begin in our body. And we use the wisdom of the body to return to that baseline equilibrium. So tools of breath and touch and movement help bring the body back to what's known as the range of resilience, the safety zone, the window of tolerance. From there, we're able, I mean, we may still be knowing that we're experiencing anxiety or fear or sadness, but we're able to nonetheless stay engaged, stay connected with other people and respond well. So we use the body base first. We're working with the body and the brain from the bottom up and the inside out. And then the emotional intelligence is both. How do you work with negative, disruptive emotions that can just dump you out of your boat, derail your resilience? And I teach a lot tools from the Mindful Self-Compassion Protocol, which simply allows us to be aware of what's happening and our reactions to what's happening, but also to bring a kindness or a compassion or care 
to ourselves for what we're experiencing. So when we hold ourselves, I'm a human being and this is really hard, it, it allows us to be able to be with the experience and then shift back out to the larger perspective. But we also, and it's just so important because it's so powerful, when we can cultivate positive emotions like gratitude or kindness or compassion or joy or awe, those positive emotions actually shift the functioning of the brain out of the negativity bias, out of our reactivity and contraction into more receptivity, more openness to learning of the bigger picture, a bigger perspective, more optimism. And study after study after study, 25 years of research now, shows that when we cultivate those positive pro-social emotions, the direct measurable cause and effect outcome is resilience. So it's not a bypass. It's not a light practice. It really has a lot of muscle to it to help us be more resilient. And then um, the relational intelligence within ourselves so that we have the self-awareness and self-acceptance that we're not beating ourselves up with a lot of negative self-talk or inner critic about how we're responding. It's just accepting, yeah, if I went ballistic, if I'm in a lot of fear, if I collapsed, I'm a human being. Those are all parts of me that are responding to this situation as best as they can. And I come back into my wiser self that can allow and embrace all those parts and come back into my higher wisdom. So it's changing our relationship to ourselves so that we can be more resilient. And then relational intelligence with others is simply being able to develop a sense of trust with other people so that we can use other people as refuges and use other people as resources so that we're not doing this all alone, all by ourselves. We get the resourcing of other people. And there are many tools to um, rebuild trust with people if that has gone awry. But something that is so important when we're dealing with upsetting, difficult, traumatizing situations is what they call compassionate companioning, just presence of another human being that's allowing and accepting and supporting is a big part of getting through anything. And then the reflective intelligence is our mindful awareness. It's our conscious awareness of being able to pause and see what's happening and how we're reacting to what's happening and to accept it, but to also notice our patterns of how we're responding. Are we Mm, making a lot of assumptions? Are we going into black and white thinking? Are we um, projecting our fears onto other people? Are we overgeneralizing? It's always going to be like this. Catastrophic thinking is the natural one for me. You know, I can sneeze and think I'm coming down with a cold <laughs> and thinking yeah. I'm going to have to stay home in bed and miss work and lose my business. And I can do that in three seconds. You know? So we all have our patterns and the mindful awareness simply allows us to be aware of our patterns so that we can begin to shift them and choosing to shift those patterns into ways of thinking or behaving that are more resilient is a big part of our resilience mindset. So those are the, the intelligences. And then I just teach lots of practices, experiential tools that, that can rewire the brain. That's part of what's in the book, but to rewire the brain, so that we have new habits of responding that are more adaptive, more skillful, more effective 
and we can learn what those are and, and make them the automatic go-to. If, if you're okay with it, I, I'd like to go to your other book and, and speak specifically about trauma. Okay. Um, in, in Bouncing Back, you refer to the trauma capsule and how mm -hmm. that can be tied to a loss of resilience. Um, can you talk about how you can actually lose resilience? And then, and then also, can you talk about how, again, in your book, you mentioned that the, the experience isn't necessarily traumatic, but how we perceive it is what makes it traumatic and then how that affects the resilience. Right. So there's several things I want to keep track of here all at once. So <laughs> the factors of resilience are the, the severity of the external stressor. So it's different being in a fender bender car accident from being in a car accident where there's an injury to causing the death of a child in a car accident. Mm -hmm. The severity of the stressor is a factor and some stressors will be more potentially traumatizing. The second factor is our external resources. So do we have financial resources, medical care? Do we have a loving and supporting family or are we, are, we, are we already alone and isolated? So the external resources make a huge difference, especially now in this time of pandemic, we can see that. And then the internal resources, which was what we're talking about in terms of resilience. So when the external stressor is severe enough, often enough over a long enough period of time and there's not enough external resources or internal resources to keep coping and keep coping and keep coping yes our capacities of coping can get depleted and then we can be in a trauma response and if we don't have time to recover from that trauma response before the next one then the brain is already in a state of mind where it's not as resilient and the next trauma can hit and the next trauma can hit. So part of trauma therapy, recovering from trauma, is being able little by little, bit by bit, to experience and hold the trauma or a part of the trauma or a tenth of the trauma and being able to be resilient, mindful, compassionate, resourced around it to let that heal. This happened. This is what I did. It worked or it didn't work. This is what I would do differently now. This, these are the lessons I've learned. This is the new opportunities coming to me because of what happened or because of how I recovered from what happened. So there's a whole way of processing the trauma. And we do that with each one. A lot of it is being resourced in connection with other people. It's remembering the positive, what else is going right, even though that went wrong, what's right with this wrong. Um, it's being able to find the silver lining, find the gifts and the mistakes. The many, many, many protocols now for recovering from trauma, but they're all body-based because the, we hold trauma memories in our body. So it's making it safe enough in the body to be with that trauma memory or part of it, a little bit a part of it, connected with other people, connected with positive resources so that it becomes metabolized. It just becomes metabolized. Yeah, it happened. It happened. This is what I did. This is what I would do differently. So then people can, as I've been saying kind of all along, people can learn the tools to recover from trauma they can learn that they can. And when you learn that you can, 
that's recovering your resilience. So being being a, a military member and and being exposed to trauma myself and having friends and and fellow but you know uh, service members exposed to trauma, what could the military do to help to make our members, our service members, more resilient for that trauma that they're most likely going to be exposed to in some form or fashion? What right. can, what can we do? There are several things, I think. Of course, part of the military is being part of a team, being part of a unit. And that cohesiveness, you know, that we rely on each other or lean into each other, that is a big part of building resilience because you know your buddies are going to risk their lives to save your life. So that's right. a huge part of the resilience right there. There was a study done maybe five or six years ago now where they found that if people in the military got the eight weeks of mindfulness-based stress reduction training before they were deployed, they were better able to have good judgment and respond skillfully once they were in a combat situation because they had been trained to be able to pay attention and keep their mind clear and steady. I think a big part of it is when people come back from deployment and <clears throat> excuse me, have had experiences that most of the general population can't even begin to imagine. Um, they need to be able to talk with other people who completely understand, yeah, I get it, I know, I was there too. That's exactly right. So that there's no stigma about any trauma <laughs> that people are going through from having been in combat or being in the military. And so I think that destigmatization of how hard it is. There is PTSD, there's lots of struggle to be with other people who totally get that and totally support how long it might take and the resourcing and the companionship that you might need to be able to process that and recover that. So there's before, during, and after. Right. I think there are, there are things that the military can do and is doing. Uh, that's good, I, I um, just interviewed a fellow uh, Navy SEAL who just retired, who was part of developing the Navy's Warrior Toughness Program, uh, mm -hmm. that in, that includes mindfulness uh, and, and meditation, which is which is good to hear that they're doing that, um, and and I believe that we will start to see you know the positive effects in our in our warriors, uh, in that not only are uh, are they going to be more resilient, but they're also going to be more empathetic. They're going to think through things uh, and respond rather than react uh, and, and just be a, a much more well-rounded warrior, not, not just a weapon, if you will. They're actually going to think through right. some things. Um, There's one thing I would add to this um, because I've seen several documentaries now about how helpful it can be when warriors return from combat to have a dog or to have a horse that is a companion that they take care of, but they feel taken care of by. And, and that bonding often helps people come back into a sense of presence and being able to connect with the larger world again, because the dog or the horse doesn't need anything and there's no judgment, there's no expectation, it's just unconditional love and bonding. Right. And so that can also be very, very helpful to people. 
Yeah, uh, I, I can attest to the, the dog piece um, and, and partially to the, the equine therapy. Um, as a matter of fact, Veterans Path here locally in Virginia, we partnered with uh, a fellow uh, BSO, Veteran Service Organization nonprofit called Trails of Purpose, uh, run by a friend of uh, my family that, that is equine therapy uh, for veterans. Uh, because of the, like you said, the unconditional love that's mm -hmm. there and no expectations, no judgment. Um, and then and then it also comes back to the, the touch. I mean, like yeah. being able to brush, brush a horse, groom a horse. Right. Um, right. And basically feel that that love there mm -hmm. uh, through that physical touch. It's it's important. Mm -hmm. so. You're feeling the neurochemical basis of that love is the oxytocin, which can be evoked not just between human beings, but between human beings and their animals or their pets. And so the oxytocin is what helps create a sense of safety and trust, or at least safer so that people can begin their way back. Mm -hmm. yeah. Definitely. Um, before uh, I get into the next question, you mentioned negativity bias a little while mm -hmm. ago, and yeah. it's something that uh, I spoke about with, I think it was either Rick, Rick Hansen or with James Barris. Um, in case our listeners haven't heard of that before and they didn't hear those episodes, can you talk about the negativity bias, what mm -hmm. that is, and then how kind of reversing that can help you bounce back from the traumatic experience. So the negativity bias is hardwired into our brains from evolution. It's our tendency to pay more attention to experiences that are unpleasant or negative or dangerous. Then we will pay attention to experiences that are pleasant or positive or safe. And that's in our brains and in our beings to keep us safe and alive as individuals and as a species. So we're never not going to have this negativity bias. Nowadays, besides protecting us from lions on the savanna, it's really meant to protect us from disconnection from people that we depend on for our survival and well-being. So we will pay more attention to the negative comment that a boss makes or a lover makes than we will to 19 other positive comments that we right. get throughout the day. So working with the negativity bias is training the brain to pay attention to the positive. And that is not a bypass. That is not a distraction. That is a skill. That is a strategy to get more and more positive emotion going in the nervous system, in our emotional system. That's what shifts the functioning of the brain out of negativity, contraction, reactivity. It shifts it back to openness and receptivity and positive. And as I said, the direct outcome of that is resilience. So when people cultivate a gratitude practice, which is one of the easiest ways to get started, or a kindness practice or an awe practice, people will um, have less anxiety, less depression, less loneliness, less stress. I mean, that's powerful more optimism, more productivity, more creativity, more social collaboration with other people. People will be healthier when we practice these positive emotions and you're boosting the immune system, will be much healthier from risks of cancer and heart disease and diabetes and stroke and all the big ones. And people who practice these positive emotions live on average seven to nine years longer. 
it's powerful. And so I always teach. I mean, we don't forget the negative. We hold that with a lot of awareness and a lot of compassion. But when you juxtapose, this is important for people to realize, when you juxtapose something negative with something positive, and if the positive is strong enough, you hold the negative and positive in your awareness at the same time. When the positive is strong enough, it will rewire the negative. It will change the neural circuitry in your brain. It's not that you forget, it just doesn't have the same charge. So we can actually use the positive, not just to shift our mood and to shift our behavior, but to actually shift the functioning of our brain. So we practice these positive emotions, not just to feel better, but so that we actually do better. Powerful tools. Definitely. Do you recommend those tools in your, in your family and your marriage therapy? And, and if so, how do, you, how do you incorporate that into your family? So I learned this from a workshop participant every night at dinner. Um, people will often do a gratitude practice, whatever they're grateful for, but her family did a practice called the rose, the thorn, and the bud. And the rose is everyone shares something delightful or happy or joyful that happened to them that day. The thorn is sharing something difficult or distressing so that everybody hears it. And then the bud is their hope for tomorrow, the hope for the next day. And so when the whole family is sharing that, you're getting the connection, you're getting the oxytocin, even for the experiences that were hard. And so people can you know, strengthen their resilience by doing that. What is important is the brain learns best little and often. So it's really important to do a small practice and repeat it many times. That's how the brain shifts and learns and grows. So to do a gratitude practice every night, three minutes worth, over time shifts the functioning of the brain. So that's why we do these practices little and often. The brain learns best little and often. This brain definitely learns best little and often. <laughs> I like that. I'm gonna, I, another one I will use. Um, well, you, you, uh, I want to shift the topic again and okay. i want to talk through the physiological part of the rewiring of the brain you've mentioned that several times through the show um yeah is it is it mindfulness is it um gratitude the negativity bias or countering the negativity bias are these all tools that are used to rewire the brain and what physiologically is happening when you talk about rewiring the brain so when i talk about rewiring the brain, and I talk about this in both of the books, these processes of brain change. There's new conditioning. When we do a new experience and we repeat it many times, it will lay down new neural circuitry so we can create a new habit. We do that all the time. Those new habits are kind of like tracks laid over the previous conditioning, the previous wiring. So when we get tired or distressed, we will revert to the old patterns that we've already learned. And sometimes those still work and sometimes they don't. So sometimes we want to rewire those patterns. It does take conscious awareness, conscious attention and intention to evoke any negative emotion or um, memory and then to evoke or create or imagine a positive experience that will directly contradict and disconfirm the original negative. 
And so I will often lead people through that process of creating that positive resource. And then you simply, if you can hold them in awareness at the same time, that's great, but go back and forth between the two. So you have the positive, it's strong. You touch into the negative again, it's there, you haven't forgotten it. But you go back to the positive, and then you touch into the negative again. Maybe it's shifting a little bit, it's lightening a little bit. You come back to the positive, and you go back and forth, back and forth until you let go of the negative, and you're just resting in the positive. When you do that often enough, it just it discharges some of the negative. It, it does rewire the neural circuitry. And people can experience this kind of, um, I will do this quite often as a physical practice, not just a mental visualization practice. But if you let your body kind of collapse in a posture of defeat or shame, and you can, uh, it doesn't feel good. I put my hand on my heart automatically because it's <laughs> not so comfortable. And then you let your body move to a posture that is the opposite, which very often will be a tall straight spine and your arms go above your head and you're looking up. It's the mountain pose of Tadasana in yoga, but it's, it's a pose that gets the energy moving up the spine. That juxtaposition will eventually um, melt away the anxiety because you're moving into a more positive pose in your body. So it's that juxtaposition that does the rewiring. And there's one other way that we can um, use our brains to cultivate more resilience. And so there's new conditioning and there's reconditioning and there's deconditioning, which the brain has another way of operating. Besides focusing our attention and accomplishing a task, when we're not focusing our attention and we're not focused on a task, the brain will just kind of relax and begin to play all over the brain. It's called the default mode network. Mm -hmm. And the positive side of that is we have imagination and we have daydreams and we have our intuition. The negative side is that we can get caught in worry and rumination because the brain will just chew on something if we're not <laughs> right. focused on a task. But we can use that default network to create virtual resources. We create a safe place in our imagination. We create a wiser self or a compassionate friend or a good inner parent or we you know we remember our dog we we use imagination in our brain to create these resources of resilience also so that we feel held belonging not alone supported and so we learn how to use the plasticity of our brain to create these new resources and it's quite possible i i know that when my clients and my workshop participants learn how the brain works. It gives them a sense of mastery and competence. Oh, I can do this. I know how to do this. And that already then helps people feel more resilient. It's not a mystery. They're learning how to channel those energies and forces for the good. Nice. Yeah. Well, Linda, we're, we're coming to the end of the show. I just got a few more questions for you. Um, okay. For you personally, what does your personal practice look like? It has two parts. I, I do track regularly. I teach about resilience. So I'm kind of checking in every five minutes. How am I doing? <laughs> but as I check in, I notice, I will notice if I'm feeling tense in my body or I'm going into my catastrophic thinking, I will notice when I'm, I'm losing my center or my ground. 
So the task, besides noticing and having compassion for that, is to come back to ground. Whether I do that physically, I go for a walk in nature and I come back into a sense of safety in my body, or whether I do that emotionally, oh, sweetheart, this is so hard. Be kind to yourself right now kindness right now and I'll come back into some more positive emotion I will reach out to other people and relationally connect but it's also coming back to a sense of being held in a consciousness or a benevolence that is much larger than any of us larger than anything and when I know that I'm held in that kind of people have different language but sacred or divine benevolence, then I'm, I don't have to take what I'm experiencing so personally. I'm, I'm showing up to deal with it, but this is what happens in life. This is what happens for human beings. So when I can let go of taking it so personally, then I'm more able to figure out what to do about it, even at a personal level. So I will, I mean, I, I can do a lot of that in five minutes, but it's about coming back to ground, to center in my body, in my heart, in my mind, in my spirit, and anchoring in that sense of centeredness and groundedness. That is our range of resilience. That is how we become more resilient in that resilient mindset, knowing that that's always available and making sure I'm there most of the time. Fantastic. <laughs> Uh, I've definitely found, um, not only since I've been practicing mindfulness and meditation, um, both to um, heal and, and to develop resilience for myself, um, but now since I've been, on, I've been doing the podcast and I've talked about it more often, that I notice um, things more often. I notice when I'm getting uh, you know, off track. I noticed uh, what did uh, Rick Rick Hansen says? You've got to be mindful about being mindful, and you've got to be mindful about being unmindful. Or I think that was it. Um, right. And and I notice I notice quite often. Oh, I am worrying about things so far in the future. I don't even know if I'm going to make it to that point. Uh, why worry about it? That's not going to help anything. Or I'm ruminating on something from the past and completely missing the moment and uh, i mean right now uh personally uh what i've my family and i have just done we've moved from a 2500 square foot house into a 250 square foot rv uh right on the beach right now and it's beautiful it's like we get to see a beautiful sunset um and and i get to spend time with my kids right there on the beach and uh i i noticed yesterday as i was walking down the beach that I, I was worried about something in the past. And I was like, John, stop. Enjoy this beautiful moment right here with your two little ones on the beach, mm -hmm. watching the sunset. And I could, I could tell that my body was calming down. My heart rate was slowing. Uh, ev everything was starting to kind of decompress with de-stress. Um, I don't even know why I went down that tangent, but, <laughs> but I, I felt like it needed to be good to calm down. So. But, but I'm, it's reminding me of something else I heard this morning. Someone was saying, where your attention goes, that's where your intention flows, and that's what grows. 
So when you can shift your attention to, okay, you're on the beach, you notice that you started worrying about something, that's the mindful awareness, and you can choose to shift. What can I be grateful for right now in this moment? Right, right. It's not a bypass. It's shifting our awareness and our attention to everything that's going more than all right. You know? right. And putting us in that gratitude space or whatever works for us, loving your kids, um, shifts the functioning of the brain so that we may know we were worried about something. We may go back and pay attention to that, but from a different place within mm -hmm. our being, from a choiceful place, not an automatic place. Right. Well, Linda, this, is, this has been fantastic having you on the show. Uh, I've enjoyed it. it. Thank you. Thank you. Um, if people wanted to reach out to you and, and ask you questions about your book or something that you mentioned on the show, what's the best way for them to get a hold of you? So people can access me through my website, which is lindagraham-mft.net. And on the website are the archives of all my weekly newsletters and interviews with other experts on resilience and audio recordings of the exercises. It's all free and easily downloadable. So there's a lot available on the website and I answer my emails. Fantastic. Well, I'll make sure that that website uh, address is in the show notes when I publish this soon. And uh, hopefully people will be reaching out to you and, and checking those, those resources out. So I think they're yeah. very important resources again uh, in this time in what we're dealing with, but just in life in general. So yeah. again, thanks for coming on the show, sharing your, your knowledge and your wisdom about developing resilience and maintaining resilience, dealing with trauma, um, and, and everything else that you shared with us today. It's been, uh, it's been fantastic, Linda. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And I enjoy being able to share this. May it be helpful. May it serve. Well, thank you, Linda. Until we speak again, stay safe and stay healthy. Likewise. For our listeners and viewers, thank you again for listening to or watching our show. Please check out Veterans Path online at veteranspath.org. We too are on social media. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, and YouTube. If you're enjoying the podcast, please hit the subscribe button here on the podcast or here on YouTube. Leave us a comment, a review, a like, and again, share it with anyone you feel needs to hear our message. And remember, you can directly support Veterans Path by clicking on the support button on the podcast or by visiting veteranspath.org forward slash donate. Thank you all and have a blessed day. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Veterans Path Podcast. Please follow us on social media and think about sharing your story with us there and potentially on the show. Together, we can make mental health a priority, improving and saving lives. 